You're listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Here's your host, Ed Yonka, Director of Communications and Public Policy. Thanks, Max, and welcome to this episode of Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. There have been a lot of stories in the news as we near these critical midterm elections about voter suppression and about efforts to limit opportunities for people to vote. We wanted to hear about some of what's happening around the country, as well as how the ACLU is responding. Joining us today on Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois is Sophia Lakin, a staff attorney with the Voting Rights Project at the National Office of the ACLU. Sophia joins us today on the line from New York. Sophia, thank you for joining us here in Chicago today. Thank you so much for having me. So we're just a little bit more than a week in advance of the midterm elections. And in terms of your voting rights work, in terms of addressing issues, I wonder, generally speaking, what are you seeing across the country? I think the question, and this is certainly how it's felt for me, is what haven't we been seeing? Um, In this cycle, the pace of issues has just been breathless. We've seen pretty much every, what feels like every new trick in the book and the resurgence of uh, lots of old tricks in the book. And, you know, the Voting Rights Project is certainly busier than ever, and we've more than doubled in size. And I know that other voting rights groups are likewise working around the clock all over the country to hold back what feels like a, a growing tide of different types of voting restrictions, voter suppression, things that are making it much more difficult for people to participate in this upcoming election. There's been a lot of attention drawn to what's happening in Georgia, and I know that you've been involved in that work there. I wonder, maybe we could talk specifically about the kind of things that you're seeing in Georgia and what the result of that has been. Yeah, definitely. And Georgia's a very interesting place right now. And, you know, we're we're seeing, like I said, all the different types of voter suppression tactics that you could possibly come up with, it feels like right now. And Georgia seems to have all of them, all at the same time. So they have a strict voter ID law. We've seen various types of purges. We've seen people being blocked from registration or their registrations being put in pending status due to errors as small as a misplaced hyphen or a dash or a space. We've called this voter suppression by typo. They also have, you know, something that we've been involved with just this week, which is a signature match requirement where the state was rejecting ballots based on, you know, an election official making eyeballing signatures to determine whether or not the he thought it matched and tossing it if not. And we we've just recently won a temporary restraining order ordering the election officials to provide some due process before they reject these types of ballots. And we're still finalizing the details of what that looks like, but this close to the election, it's a great relief that these voters who have done everything right will have their ballots counted. Exactly. So when we talk about, like, voter purges, and you can pick out any state, but, like, what kind of numbers are we talking about of, of you know, say, either the raw number or the percentages of people who are moved off the voting rolls? And, and what is the justification for that? So... You know, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the justification first, because I, I just want to make clear that list maintenance, which is more the benign way of talking about voter roll purges, 
taking people off the rolls if they've moved, if they've died, these types of things. That's a normal process in election administration. And we all want our voter rolls to be up to date and accurate and so forth. But what we're seeing is this really aggressive effort to take people off the rolls. When you have really, really aggressive efforts where you're not having safeguards in place that are mandated by federal law, you're using unreliable data sources to determine whether somebody has died or somebody has moved, then you really do risk taking people off the rolls that should not be taken off the rolls. And in certain states, it varies a bit. We're talking about voters in the hundreds of thousands that are being removed from the rolls every year. And like I said, in some instances, those voters are legitimately removed from the rolls, but those numbers have been climbing, especially in states that have a long history of discrimination and specifically discrimination in voting, including places like Georgia, Texas, North Carolina, and so forth. That confluence of events, the rise in purging, more aggressive purging, where you're likely to make more mistakes and not protect voters, as well as that happening in places that have a history of of voting discrimination and were recently released from having to go to the federal government for approval before doing such things as changing the way that they purge roles and making it more aggressive in terms of removing people. That's really concerning to us. So you talked, the other issue that you talked about that we're seeing in Georgia is the issue of the exact match for voters who are submitting mail-in ballots. And I wonder, what is the standard for an exact match for a signature? Are the election officials really able to say what that is, or is it literally just the perception or the judgment of a single election official? So it probably varies a little bit county to county from what we heard in court papers in Gwinnett County, where there's been a lot of concern because it's a population that's a growing minority population in that particular county, and the rejection rates have fallen disproportionately on voters of color there by a large margin. They've indicated in court papers that it's not just one person, it is more than one person. However, I'd emphasize that no matter how many people, and we have an expert who's worked in signature match cases, all over the country and in hundreds of them internationally and so forth. And his opinion about that is no matter how many lay people who have no training whatsoever in how to look at signatures and understand natural variations that might occur, it doesn't matter how many people you have looking at that. Mistakes are going to occur, and they're always going to occur at a much higher rate in falsely determining that some signature doesn't match rather than the other way around. So in other counties, there may just be one individual statute doesn't require it to be more than one lay individual with no handwriting expertise. That's amazing. One of the other issues that you mentioned was the use of unreliable data in terms of striking people off the voter rolls. I think people don't often understand, like, Where does that data come from? What lists are used to cross-reference voting rolls in terms of purging people off of those rolls? So there are a lot of different sources that states can use to determine whether or not an individual possibly moved, if they died, their death records, vital statistics records, criminal records in, in places that disenfranchise voters while they're in serving time for a felony or even afterwards. But, you know, what we're particularly concerned about in recent times has been this 
interstate voter cross-check system, which I know has gotten a lot of play in media recently and over the years. It's sort of the brainchild of Chris Kobach of Kansas, but certainly a process that he has really championed and put forward as a good tool for states to use as a way to see if there are voters that have maybe moved to another state and registered in another state. And the problem with that system is it relies on on voter registration data from different states who participate. And what I understand, Illinois is still participating in in the cross-check program. Um, And so they upload their data to cross-check. And someone in the Kansas Secretary of State's office, Chris Kobach's office, goes through that data, tries to match it based on first name, last name, and date of birth, and then sends out these supposed matches back out to the different states. And the different states can do what they want to with that information. And the problem with that is matching voters based on first name, last name, and date of birth is extremely unreliable in terms of finding two people who maybe match but aren't actually matched. It's surprising, or maybe it's not surprising, that a lot of people actually share first name, last name, and date of birth. And there have been some studies indicating that you'll actually get a false positive 99% of the time if you use that as a methodology. So states are starting off with this pretty flawed match list of individuals. And if they aren't careful with that information, then you're going to purge people from the rules that shouldn't be purged. And that's something that we're concerned about, for instance, in Indiana, where we the ACLU has a lawsuit challenging the use of cross-check data without federally mandated procedural safeguards, notice, a waiting period, so that a voter who might be flagged through this process has an opportunity to say, hey, you've got the wrong person. I'm a registered voter in Indiana. Do not remove me. You know, maybe one of the reasons that the situation in Georgia in this election cycle has gotten so much attention is that the person who's the most hotly contested race in that state is also the person who's responsible for overseeing the election. Is that just a perception issue, or do you think that there are real problems that flow from the involvement of people who are in contested elections or contested elections on one hand, then overseeing the voting process on the other? I think there's an inherent conflict of interest when you have that type of situation. And, you know, unfortunately, the way that we run elections here, some of these secretaries of states who are in control of election policies and rules and procedures, and even if there are statutes on the book that are fine, how do they implement those in practice? Those are partisan positions in many states in in this country. And that is troubling, especially when you have that person also on the ticket for a race. And what's troubling, you know, in Georgia, and I think this is a concern that's been raised many times, is Secretary of State Kemp has been overseeing some of the largest increases in voter purges in Georgia. He is overseeing this exact match issue that we've talked a little bit about, the disenfranchisement or voter suppression by typo. He's implemented and enforcing a lot of different other types of things that essentially allow him as Secretary of State to carve out and slice and dice the electorate to make it more difficult for certain types of voters to vote. And that's a perversion, I would say, of how democracy is supposed to work. Voters should be electing their elected officials, not elected officials being in charge of choosing, 
you know, who their voters are. And we're seeing it, obviously, in Georgia. I think it's an issue also in Kansas, where uh, Secretary of State Chris Kobach is on the ticket in a very close race in Kansas. And we're seeing issues that sound similar in terms of elected representatives who shape the laws, who shape the policies, putting in place these different types of voter restrictions that do fall disproportionately on certain types of voters, voters of color, young voters, poor voters, elderly voters, voters with disabilities. And we're seeing them play out in places that have close races that are often seen pivotal as battleground states in this country, but also in terms of who's going to be in control of the Senate. So we're seeing issues arise in North Dakota with their voter ID requirement there, and Indiana, which we talked a little bit about with the voter purge in Missouri and Arizona. Those states aren't complying with obligations under the federal motor voter law, and Missouri just this past year started enforcing its new voter ID requirement there. So when you take a look at a little bit about that interplay of these close elections and the restrictions and who those restrictions are falling on, it's, I think it's really created a lot of um, concern and um, interest and realization that why these types of voting restrictions really do make a big difference in what our elected population actually looks like. So you had mentioned earlier that Georgia is one of the states which no longer has to go to the federal government for approval, you know, in order to make a change to its election system because of a Supreme Court decision, Shelby County versus Holder. So is that sort of weakening of the Voting Rights Act, is that leading to a lot of these activities that we're seeing across the country? Most definitely. And as I said sort of at the beginning, that's not just in the substance of what we're seeing, sort of more egregious, I would say, types of restrictions, but also just in the sheer volume of suppressive tactics that we're seeing in different places. And for example, I can give you just one very recent example that probably highlights the issue we're facing here in the aftermath of the Shelby County decision, but in Randolph County, Georgia, and Georgia was a state covered by the Voting Rights Act, there was an attempt to close 75% of the polling locations in that particular county. And that's a change that would have, prior to Shelby County, required approval from the federal government before anything could happen. Randolph County is a rural county in the Black Belt. It's disproportionately African-American and disproportionately poor as compared to the rest of the state. So the impact of those closures would have necessarily disproportionately fallen on Black, poor voters in the state. Ultimately, through a lot of advocacy, mobilizing community members, great communications work, of course, a threat of a lawsuit that we had prepared and were ready to go, we were able to get the county to back down. That was a victory, but it took a lot of resources. And this is just one county in a state with 159 counties. And we know that there have been polling closures that are happening throughout the state of Georgia and elsewhere in the formerly covered jurisdictions. So that's just one example of the type of thing that we probably would not have had to deal with because that change maybe wouldn't have ever even been thought of under the preclearance regime because... Why bother to go through that process if you know it's going to have a discriminatory effect? And now we're seeing again and again in place in in county and county over and over again. And voting rights advocates are spread fairly thin because of it. And we're doing what we can, but 
that's just an example of one type of thing that we're seeing. So as we look forward, you know, beyond these midterms on to 2020 municipal elections and beyond, is there a fix for the problems that were created as part of the Shelby County decision? So there are a number of things. There certainly has been a fix proposed in Congress, a federal level one. It has not gone very far, as with a lot of legislation in our current system right this moment. But I would say that there are also things that can be done at the state level. And we are seeing some really great things happening, not just legislatively, but also a number of really great initiatives that are on the ballot this November. So for instance, I would say one of the big ones that we have is the ACLU is, along with partners, supporting an amendment to the Florida Constitution to essentially allow individuals who were disenfranchised because of a felony conviction to regain their right to vote upon completion of their sentence. And this affects a lot of people. In in Florida, we're talking about 1.4 million voters who could be enfranchised by this particular amendment to the Florida Constitution. And it's something that has had a disproportionate effect in Florida over the years because of the confluence of race discrimination in the criminal justice system and voting. And so that's one place where we're seeing some efforts to positively move the ball forward and expand access. We also have an initiative in Michigan that the ACLU is working with partners to hopefully get passed on the ballot. And that would do a number of really great things, including providing same-day registration. So early voting, you can go in and also register to vote at the same time that you cast your ballot. So none of this registration cutoff problem that we're seeing in other places. Also election day registration, where on election day, you can also register to vote on that day. Another innovation there is no excuse absentee voting, which, you know, Tuesday, of a random Tuesday in November, or even the days leading up can be difficult for some people to be able to cast a ballot, or if they have other reasons for not being at the polls that day. And and being able to cast an absentee ballot is really a great way to expand access to the ballot. And in Nevada, we're also supporting a ballot initiative there where they're adopting, hopefully, through this ballot initiative, automatic voter registration, which I know Illinois is in the process of rolling out as well. Exactly. And it's one of the things I think we're fortunate here in Illinois that we have the no excuse absentee voting. We have same day election day registration. We have automatic registration that's being rolled out. And of course, we permit people once they've completed their sentence or while they're awaiting trial in our county jails to vote in all of those instances, you know, which is, I think, something we benefit from here. Let me ask you one closing question, which is, as long as I have a voting rights expert on the line, what would you say to somebody listening to this if they go to their polling place on election day and their vote is challenged? What is your best advice of what they should do in that moment and in that situation? So what I would first say is that anyone who's listening to this before election day, if you have any concerns about what your rights are, that you should definitely check those. If you have questions, reach out to us here at the ACLU Voting Rights Project, reach out to the Election Protection Hotline, reach out to the local ACLU affiliate, and clarify exactly what your concerns about. Things like, I think a great example would be um, accessibility of the polls for voters with disabilities that may have some questions about whether they can go vote in person at a particular polling site. 
But if on election day you find yourself in a situation where someone is telling you for some reason that you can't vote, number one, I would say look for an election protection volunteer and seek them out for their help. Sometimes they can just resolve it there for you, talking to the right people. Sometimes there are partisan monitors in the polling places themselves who also might be able to help you figure these types of things out, work with the election administrators there to solve it right there and then. You can also call the election protection hotline, the 866-HOUR-VOTE hotline, um, to find out what your rights are at that moment. And also, if you report that issue, folks monitoring the line will try their best to resolve the issue as quickly as possible as well. And it's a great way for us to get information about the problems that are systemic that we're seeing across the day when people are voting and so forth. And that hotline is live right now as well. And at the very least, it's important that you report what you encountered, even if you were able to resolve it after figuring everything out yourself. But the very important thing to do is never leave the polling place without casting at least a provisional ballot. No matter what they say to you, you can cast a provisional ballot. And at the very least, there's a way for us to say that that ballot was cast and that ballot should be counted. But if you leave without doing that, it's a lot harder to do anything about it. And to know. Well, Sophia, thank you so much for joining and sharing a little bit about what's happening around the country. Best of luck as we go into these last days before the election. And uh, we'll look forward to talking about these issues in the future. Great. Thank you so much. That's our episode for today. Thank you for listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. I really want to thank Sophia Lakin, a staff attorney with the National ACLU Voting Rights Project. I want to reiterate a couple of things that we heard today. First of all, if you live in Illinois and you are not yet registered to vote, you still can register up to and including registering and voting on election day. If you are challenged in any way at the polls, please insist on voting a provisional ballot. That ballot can still be counted. If you run into any problems, please call 1-866-R-VOTE. That's 1-866-687-8683. And if you're listening to us from outside of Illinois, and want to know about your rights to vote, you can contact aclu.org slash voter to learn more about requirements in your state. Talking Liberties is produced by Max Bever, executive producer, Chris Olson. This episode was mixed by Matt Sorrow. Our executive director is Colleen Connell. Subscribe to this podcast and rate us. You can visit our website at aclu-il.org. You can contact us directly at talkingliberties at aclu-il.org. Until next time, this is Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. See you soon.